This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 21, The Diadochy. Episode 18, the story of the life of Alexander the Great came to an abrupt end when we learned of Alexander's death in the year 323 BCE. Alexander the Great was actually Alexander III, the king of Macedon, a land in the far north of the Greek-speaking lands, who were initially in the shadows of Greek politics when Athens, Sparta, Thebes and Corinth were the superpowers of the Balkan city-states. Eventually, when Alexander's father was the king, Macedon became the most dominant of the Greek-speaking nations. Then, in 336 BCE, Alexander took the throne and invaded Persia. Alexander would march through the Achaemenid Persian Empire taking city after city and winning battle after battle. Alexander would eventually chase the Persian king off of his throne and rule over his lands. Then, when Alexander was planning to expand this new Macedonian empire even further, he fell ill and died at the tender age of 32. When Alexander's father died, Alexander's ascension and continuation of his father's work was quite a natural thing because Alexander was already a young man, 20 years of age, a capable leader and military commander, clearly groomed for monarchy. However, with Alexander's sudden death, there was no successor prepared to take over. Had Alexander lived for another 20 years, then the situation may have been completely different. And the reason we can say this is due to a fact revealed towards the end of episode 18, when we declared that at the end of 324 BCE, Alexander's wife, Roxana, had fallen pregnant. As things transpired, Alexander would never see his child, as he passed away before his child's birth. Roxana gave birth to a baby boy. So this son of Alexander would become Alexander IV of Macedon on his birth. However, he would also become the Persian King of Kings and the hegemon of the Hellenic League of Greek Poles and the Pharaoh of Egypt. Such was the mighty success of his father. However, the newborn baby king would need to have regents, but the question would be, who should the regent be? It could be natural to assume that the son of the Macedonian king should have a Macedonian regent, but we have to consider that Alexander didn't have a lot to do with the land of Macedon during his reign. He was in Persia 
befriending Persians, encouraging the men of his Macedonian army to marry Persian women, promoting Persians to prominent positions in his army. So the regent of the remnants of the Persian Empire, ruled by an immigrant king, should surely be a Persian. So already we can see a problem. Everyone had a case to make, and baby Alexander IV had too many titles. Why would the Egyptians want to have a pharaoh who was half Macedonian, half Bactrian? Surely it would be easier to have their own ruler, now that there was no Alexander the Great to be in charge, and no Achaemenid dynasty to be protected from. All things considered, surely this vast but confused empire could not remain a united entity through this period. Philip Aridaeus Before Alexander IV's birth, not all of Alexander's generals supported the ascent of the newborn king. Some would support Alexander's older half-brother, Aridaeus. Aridaeus was also a son of King Philip II, but not the son of Olympias, who was Alexander the Great's mother. So the fact that Aridaeus was the son of a different woman would have made him a rival to the throne. And as we have learned, there was a strong possibility that Olympias played some part in orchestrating the ascent of her son, Alexander the Great, to the Macedonian throne, even with suspicion of her instigating the murder of her own husband, King Philip II, at an opportune time to ensure Alexander was in pole position to take the throne. Therefore, it would make sense that Aridaeus's life should have been in danger as well. However, what we do know about Aridaeus is that he had a mental deficiency which we are not able to specifically identify. The Greek philosopher called Plutarch, who was alive around 400 years later and often wrote about history, stated that it was because of Olympias attempting to poison Aridaeus that he developed physical and mental deficiencies. Despite Aridaeus actually being with his brother in Babylon when he died, there is no evidence whatsoever of him having any kind of military command during Alexander's Persian campaigns. And this is either because Aridaeus wasn't there or because Aridaeus was not capable of fulfilling this role due to his restricted condition. It was eventually decided that both Aridaeus and baby Alexander could be recognised as kings of Macedon and so Aridaeus would become King Philip III of Macedon and his nephew would become Alexander IV of Macedon. However, with a mentally challenged man and a newborn baby now ruling the vacated lands of Alexander the Great, it was clear that this situation was being allowed thanks to the power of others who sought to pull the strings of these ineffective monarchs. The Hellenic League The success of Alexander the Great's invasion of Persia 
was in part thanks to the work of Alexander and his father Philip II in establishing the League of Corinth, or what we have been calling the Hellenic League. The unification of the Greek polis into a purposeful Hellenic army gave Alexander the Great access to many thousands of expert military men. However, as we discovered, upon the death of Philip II, members of the Hellenic League, including Thebes, decided to revolt against the new and inexperienced King Alexander. Which is a familiar thing for a lot of new monarchs of this time to contend with. The death of Alexander the Great was no different. Athens would lead an alliance of Greek polis and leagues in an uprising against the man who had been taking care of home affairs in Macedonia since Alexander the Great started campaigning, his name being Antipater. During these exchanges, Antipater would yet again show his excellent capabilities as a national leader, despite not being an official monarch. Antipater would defeat the Athenian alliance and would take the political situation a step further than those before him by abolishing the Athenian democracy and putting in place an oligarchic rule with a Macedonian garrison. Many of the citizens of many of the Greek lands were exiled, as Antipater made a definite attempt to strip these troublesome polis of their identities, traditions and legacies. The Hellenic League was disbanded and its members completely altered in their nature. The one Athenian statesman who had influentially encouraged Athenians to rebel against the Macedonians on more than one occasion, and including this occasion, was Demosthenes, a man who we spoke of in episode 17. Antipater had no interest in allowing Demosthenes to remain a free citizen of Athens, and so Demosthenes had to flee before committing suicide to avoid his eventual capture. Ptolemy Macedonian kings such as Philip II and Alexander III had an entourage of bodyguards called Somatophelikes. One of Alexander's Somatophelikes was a man called Ptolemy and he played an important role in Alexander the Great's Persian campaigns. There were many other important military generals and statesmen that had accompanied Alexander the Great before his death and they were all keen to see whether they could benefit in the aftermath of their king's death. It was decided at a conference called the Partition of Babylon that the main military officers should become the new satraps of the Macedonian Persian Empire and Ptolemy was rewarded with the satrapy of Egypt. Ptolemy appears to have embraced his new role and declared himself Pharaoh Ptolemy I Sota, and this was a key reason why Alexander the Great's body ended up in a tomb in the Egyptian city of Alexandria. One of Alexander the Great's generals 
was a man called Perdiccas, born of a noble family of Macedonia. Perdiccas would emerge from the partition of Babylon as the regent to the mentally challenged Philip III and the newborn Alexander IV. Perdiccas may have felt like he needed to be quite heavy-handed and strong-willed to effectively fill the shoes of Alexander the Great, and the other generals such as Ptolemy and Antipater would probably be questioning Perdiccas's credentials against their own. One Macedonian tradition was that the new king of Macedon should be the one to bury the deceased and outgoing king, and Ptolemy was very quick to prevent Perdiccas from this honour, and this is why Alexander the Great was entombed in Alexandria. Ptolemy prevented Perdiccas from taking the remains back to Macedon by capturing them and taking them to Egypt. Perdiccas would interpret this as a direct challenge against his position and would believe that Ptolemy, with the valuable satrapy of Egypt, could endeavour to depose Perdiccas, so Perdiccas would befriend Alexander the Great's mother, Olympias, and become betrothed to marry Alexander's sister, Cleopatra, whose previous wedding was the one we spoke of in episode 17, which was the occasion of the death of Alexander the Great's father, King Philip II of Macedon. This may well have upset Antipater, whose own daughter had been betrothed to Perdiccas. Antipater also recognised the danger of Perdiccas's assertions, especially as he had worked hard to maintain and protect the homelands of the Macedonian Empire. However, by this time Antipater was a very old man of nearly 80 years old, so it would have been unlikely for him to want to actively oppose Perdiccas on the battlefield. Antigonus Another Macedonian of noble stock who has been a trusted military commander of Alexander the Great was a man called Antigonus. After Alexander the Great's astonishing victory at the Battle of Issus during his Persian campaigns, Antigonus was granted the satrapy of Phrygia in the heart of Anatolia. We covered the Battle of Issus in episode 19. Following Alexander's death, Antigonus would continue as the satrap of Phrygia, but he would also have his differences with Perdiccas, the new regent of the Macedonian Empire. Perdiccas would attempt to dictate to Antigonus where his satrapy's border began and ended and who would be in charge of neighbouring lands such as Cappadocia. Antigonus would not cooperate with Perdiccas's wishes, and Perdiccas would take this as a direct challenge to his authority. The threat of Perdiccas taking his frustration out on Antigonus would drive Antigonus into an alliance with Antipater, 
who by this time had little regard for Perdiccas himself. Antigonus himself would have been around 60 years old. However, Antipater, as we mentioned before, was 20 years older than that, and as such, he would depend on the assistance of a general called Craterus. Not only for when he defeated the Athenian revolt, but also now that there was a requirement for an alliance against Perdiccas. Eumenes Antigonus became an opponent of Perdiccas because he effectively ignored Perdiccas's instruction to help to subdue Cappadocia, which was a neighbouring land to the east of Phrygia. Perdiccas wanted this land subdued for the benefit of a man called Eumenes, who was intended to be the satrap, but Antigonus had no interest in assisting in this task. Eumenes had served Philip II and Alexander the Great, although it was in an administrative role, and also he wasn't of Macedonian noble stock, like many of the other Hellenistic satraps. So we can see that Eumenes was favoured by Perdiccas, so Perdiccas did have somebody who he could rely on to help him. When Perdiccas learnt that the general Craterus was preparing to cross the Hellespont to represent the joint forces of Antipater and Antigonus, he dispatched Eumenes alongside another of Alexander the Great's generals called Neoptolemus, not to be confused with Neoptolemus, king of Epirus and father of Olympias, Alexander the Great's mother. So Eumenes and Neoptolemus headed west to prevent Craterus from crossing the Hellespont, but nobody could have predicted the sequence of events that took place. It was now 321 BCE, and Craterus's army would engage with Eumenes's army at the Battle of the Hellespont. It would be the action of Neoptolemus that would cause the first problem for Eumenes. Neoptolemus demonstrated his true position by switching sides and joining Craterus, Antipater's trusted general. There would surely be no chance for Eumenes now. In the final showdown, the two armies, both maybe 20,000 strong and both with traditional phalanx flanked by cavalry-style formation, engaged in battle. Eumenes would advance with force and aggression, and this took Craterus by surprise. As Craterus's army scattered, Craterus himself was killed on the battlefield. The turncoat commander Neoptolemus advanced towards Eumenes himself, and legend tells us that Neoptolemus and Eumenes engaged directly in battle with each other with the result being that Eumenes killed Neoptolemus in what appeared to be an unlikely victory. Perdiccas Despite Eumenes' incredible victory at the Battle of the Hellespont being a huge boost for the Macedonian-Persian region, Perdiccas 
would still need to deal with the fact that Ptolemy had effectively stolen the remains of Alexander the Great and taken them back to Egypt in an iconic denial of Perdiccas Regency of the Empire. We mentioned this act earlier in the podcast, but we believe that it was around the time of the Battle of the Hellespont, or just after, that it took place. Alexander's body hadn't quite reached Alexandria, but was being held in Memphis, and Perdiccas was on his way to Egypt to recover it. Perdiccas reached the Egyptian city of Pelusium, which was an iconic site of multiple Persian victories over the Egyptians. Perdiccas's invasion could represent another instance of the invasion of an army from Mesopotamia against the Egyptians. This time, Perdiccas's army reached the river Nile and had difficulty crossing it. This caused a huge amount of frustration among Perdiccas's army, who may have felt that Perdiccas was not the right man to lead them. The big question has to be, how long had this feeling about Perdiccas existed for? It appears that Perdiccas's army lost faith in him during the Egyptian campaign. However, it would be Perdiccas's own officers who would make the decisive action. Three named officers are Pithon, the satrap of Media, Antigenis, the satrap of Susiana, which was formerly the lands of Elam, centred on the city of Susa, and the third one was Seleucus Nicator, a man who was appointed as the commander of the companion cavalry after the death of Alexander the Great, which was a very important ceremonial role of the empire. What may be more interesting to us about Seleucus is that he was the same Seleucus that we spoke at length about during episode 3. These three officers, Pithon, Antigenis and Seleucus, have gone down in history as responsible for the murder of Perdiccas. Most of Perdiccas's army defected to Ptolemy's side, and so you have to wonder whether Perdiccas lost the loyalty of his closest allies during the campaign in Egypt, or whether there is a case to be made for a plot to remove him manifesting itself within the empire for some time. Maybe surprisingly though, Ptolemy had no interest in replacing Perdiccas as the regent of the empire, seemingly happy with his position as the satrap of Egypt. This instigated another partition meeting at the Levantine settlement of Triparadisos. The elder statesman Antipater of geographical land of Macedon became the new regent of the empire, while Philip III and Alexander IV were still the ceremonial but ineffective monarchs. Antigonus continued on in Phrygia, Pithon in Media and Antigenis in Susiana. Seleucus 
would be recognised as the satrap of Babylonia. Eumenes, satrap of Cappadocia, victor at the Battle of the Hellespont and ally of the murdered Perdiccas, was removed from his satrapy and condemned to death upon his capture. Cassander Antipater's regency did not last long. He was very elderly for this time, having reached the ripe old age of 81. Upon his deathbed, he could have opted to take the dynastic option of naming his son, Cassander, as the new regent. Antipater did not do this though, and for whatever reason, he named another Macedonian general called Polyperchon as the new regent of the empire. It may be that Antipater was trying to protect his son from the thankless and frankly dangerous task of imperial regency, but Cassander was not concerned about that and believed that he had a right to take on the task. So Cassander would look to make moves against Polyperchon by allying himself with his father's trusted ally, Antigonus. Eumenes, who had been run out of his satrapy after the death of Perdiccas, was a natural enemy of Antigonus, so we should not be surprised to see him side with Polyperchon. Cassander had a strong footing in the Greek homeland, so Polyperchon, who was up for the challenge of putting Cassander down, attempted to make military moves against Cassander at Athens and on the Peloponnese. Polyperchon was struggling to make any progress though. Polyperchon was taking responsibility for the infant child king Alexander IV and so he would retreat to the land of the child's grandmother, Olympias, in the kingdom of Epirus. With Polyperchon in control of one imperial monarch, Cassander would take control of the other, Philip III, the mentally challenged co-monarch. However, while Philip III was in Macedonia, Polyperchon would invade, and the Macedonians did not do battle simply because Polyperchon was accompanied by Olympias, the mother of their beloved Alexander the Great. Philip III was ultimately captured and executed by Olympias, leaving just one imperial monarch, the child king Alexander IV, grandson of Olympias and son of Alexander the Great by his wife, Roxana. When Cassander returned to Macedon, with his own loyal army, he would avenge the murder of Philip III by seizing Macedon back and finally putting an end to the life of Alexander the Great's mother, Olympias. Cassander would be able to gain control of the boy king Alexander IV and Roxana, which would be a crushing blow for Polyperchon. Antigonus. Now, 
We have already spoken of Antigonus in this episode. After the death of Alexander the Great, Antigonus was granted the satrapy of Phrygia, and this brought him into conflict with Eumenes, supported by Perdiccas. Antigonus would need to seek assistance, so he would align himself with Antipater in Greece and Ptolemy in Egypt. However, even after the death of Perdiccas, Antigonus would still have to contend with his arch-rival Eumenes, who would now be offering support to Polypercon. When Antigonus prevented Eumenes from doing so, Eumenes would approach other satraps, including those who were directly responsible for the murder of Perdiccas, the imperial regent some years before. Those satraps were Antigenes, Python and Seleucus. Python and Seleucus stayed loyal to Antigonus, who could be loosely described as a traditional ally due to previous associations with Ptolemy especially. Antigenes of Susa may be surprisingly showed loyalty to Eumenes, however, putting himself in direct opposition. With Eumenes gathering allies, Antigonus had no option but to respond before the power of Eumenes became irresistible. Two major battles between the forces of Antigonus and Eumenes took place around the Iranian plateau. Both armies seemed to counterbalance one another but with somewhat inconclusive outcomes at both meetings. However, the looting of the army camp of Eumenes during the second battle turned out to be a serious issue due to the fact that much of the treasured possessions of the soldiers, including their actual families as well, were taken by Antigonus's forces. So this clever piece of work would cause Eumenes's soldiers to turn him in in order for them to take their possessions back. Things were certainly very grim indeed for Eumenes, as he was now a prisoner of his bitter enemy. After consultation between the highest members of Antigonus's council, there could only be one outcome. Eumenes was executed. The three satraps that had murdered Perdiccas some years before were Antigenes, Python, and Seleucus. Antigenes had allied himself to Eumenes as a commander of his army, and as such, Antigonus also had him executed. Python had remained loyal to Antigonus and had actually commanded factions of Antigonus's army during these key battles. However, after the defeat and execution of Eumenes, cracks started to show in what may have been otherwise perceived as a wonderful relationship. Python himself seemed to fancy himself as an important player in Persian politics, clearly with his own ambitions. He would embark on a project of trying to muster up the loyalties of societies and their military until he would overreach himself 
by trying to recruit some of Antigonus's own army into his own. Maybe concerned that he could ultimately have another enemy like Eumenes on his hands, Antigonus moved to prevent what he saw as a treacherous move by Python and had him executed as well. Antigonus was still on friendly terms with Seleucus, but Antigonus would make financial demands of Seleucus which would frighten him into the arms of Ptolemy in Egypt. This links us up nicely to the story we told in episode 3 on this volume of the podcast where we first introduced the escape of Seleucus to Egypt. Antigonus effectively now had power over much of Anatolia, Mesopotamia and the Persian heartlands and this would be a concern for both Cassander and Ptolemy who would have to view Antigonus as a potential problem if he opted to vie for more power. Lysimachus Somebody who had done well not to get embroiled in all of this political turbulence was the satrap of Thrace, a man called Lysimachus, who was also mentioned in episode 3. The fact that Antigonus had effectively run Seleucus out of his own satrapy would have been hugely concerning for Lysimachus, whose own satrapy bordered Antigonus's just across the Hellespont. So Lysimachus made an ally out of Cassander in Macedon and Greece, and they would both form an alliance with Ptolemy in Egypt, who was hosting the escaped Seleucus from Babylonia. The four of them together would demand that Antigonus evenly distribute his lands among them all. But Antigonus had worked too hard and invested too much to simply surrender his spoils of battle just because the other satraps were fearful of his growing power. Antigonus would have to utilise his own allies from the less major satrapies and dispatch them to deal with the multiple threats to his power, whether it be from Cassander and Lysimachus in Anatolia, or Ptolemy and Seleucus in the Levant. Ptolemy and Seleucus would win an important battle at Gaza against an army led by Antigonus' own son, Demetrius, in 312 BCE, and this would allow Seleucus to resume his place in Babylonia once again. So this was just 11 years after the death of Alexander the Great, and the Macedonian Empire had been through so much. Antigonus would have to come to terms with the fact that Seleucus would be back in control of the East now. Both Lysimachus and Ptolemy would be securing their respective satraps of Thrace and Egypt. However, Cassander, as the regent of the empire, would be reminded that Alexander IV was now approaching his teens and that he should prepare to step aside and allow him to rule as a man in his own right. Alexander the Fourth. Now, different sources have differing specific details for the timeline of events of this period, so we must try to keep things somewhat generalised 
for the sake of the story itself. Cassander seemingly understood that his power may come under threat with the promise of Alexander IV coming of age over the course of the next few years. He was also still opposed by Antigonus, who although suppressed by his losses to his enemies, was still an influential and powerful satrap. Cassander was also still opposed by Polypercon, who was in the Peloponnese. It was at this point that Cassander would make a very bold move. He would arrange the death of the child king Alexander IV and his own mother Roxana by poisoning. This would prompt Antigonus and Polypercon to put forward a new king for the empire, an illegitimate child of Alexander the Great called Heracles of Macedon. The validity of Heracles' identity and claim is a matter for debate, but the outcome was that Cassander would approach Polypercon and he would make it worth Polypercon's while to murder Heracles and to disappear into obscurity himself. And this did indeed happen. So Antigonus once again had failed to succeed in suppressing Cassander and there was little to stop Cassander's escalation to further power with no further dynastic claimants to the throne from the line of Philip II. Antigonus would anticipate Cassander's move for power and would take the radical decision of declaring his satrapy an Antigone kingdom and declaring himself as the king. This would prompt the other powerful satraps, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy and Seleucus to also refer to themselves as kings of their own kingdoms. So the empire was becoming obsolete and the Macedonian satraps were claiming independence for their lands. Antigonus may have been able to settle into an understanding of his kingdom's place in the world if he had shown more desire to be diplomatic with the others, as the others had been with each other, using political marriages to strengthen their bonds with one another. Possibly fearing for his kingdom simply by being geographically surrounded from all sides by a potential enemy, Antigonus clearly felt that aggression was the best approach. His natural enemy had always been Cassander, and Cassander had maintained a good relationship with Lysimachus, Ptolemy and Seleucus. The Battle of Ipsus The culmination of this rivalry was at the Battle of Ipsus in the year 301 BCE. Amazingly, Antigonus was now around 80 years of age, having maintained the hunger to stand up against his incredibly strong enemies, but ably assisted by his son, Demetrius. Ipsus was a settlement in the Phrygian region of the Antigonic kingdom, and Cassander, Lysimachus and Seleucus linked up against Antigonus in a battle that involved many tens of thousands of men. 
Antigonus's son Demetrius became isolated during the battle and had to escape, effectively having to abandon his father Antigonus, who was ultimately struck by a javelin, which caused the end of his long and incredible life. Lysimachus and Seleucus would divide up most of the Antigonid kingdom between them and Demetrius would flee to the Greek mainland. Cassander was now rid of his traditional rival Antigonus, but there were no further engagements of any note between Cassander and Demetrius because Cassander himself would die of edema in 297 BCE. The rule of the Macedonian kingdom continued with members of the Antipatrid dynasty until none other than Demetrius came and took the throne for himself, creating an Antigonid dynasty, which just seven years earlier following the Battle of Ipsus would surely be viewed as a virtual impossibility. Demetrius would not be allowed to rule Macedonia in peace, and the combined forces of Lysimachus, Ptolemy and King Pyrrhus of Epirus would depose him in around 288 BCE. King Pyrrhus of Epirus is the same king we spoke of back in Volume 2 on our episode on the Phoenicians, when we spoke of his campaigns of the 270s BCE into Sicily and the Italian peninsula. Back to the 280s though, and Demetrius never really recovered from his fall from grace and ultimately ended up drinking himself to death in the Seleucid Empire. Ptolemy would return to Egypt while Lysimachus and Pyrrhus would jointly rule over Macedon. Lysimachus would then run Pyrrhus out of Macedon and take control for himself. At this point in our story, we lose Ptolemy, who died in 282 BCE, but had lived to the grand age of 85. Ptolemy was succeeded by his son, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, at the chagrin of his other son, Ptolemy Caraunus, who decided to flee Egypt and joined Lysimachus in Thrace and Macedon. So at this point, there were three significant kingdoms which had emerged from the remnants of this period in history, the 40 years after the death of Alexander the Great. It would be Lysimachus's kingdom based in the Greek lands on the European side of the Hellespont, the Seleucid Empire, which had expanded in the Asian lands centred on Mesopotamia, and Ptolemaic Egypt. Despite any historical alliances, all three kingdoms were now incredibly paranoid of each other's intentions. Tensions existed in Lysimachus's court as he was torn between having a political alliance with each of the Ptolemy brothers of Egypt, with Lysimachus seemingly showing more affiliation to Ptolemy II Philadelphus, the pharaoh of Egypt. Ptolemy Caraunus would leave the Lysimachid kingdom and head to Seleucus. Seleucus now saw an opportunity to confront Lysimachus on the battlefield and he would raise an army. 
the Lysimachids and the Seleucids met in battle in 281 BCE at the Battle of Corypodium. The details of this battle are a mystery, but we know that Seleucus was victorious, and we know that Lysimachus was killed, and he may have been as old as 80 years. We can never truly know what was going through the mind of these men, and that is some of the beauty of the story. Why did Ptolemy I Sota favour Ptolemy II Philadelphus to succeed him over his other son, Ptolemy Caraunus? Was it because Ptolemy Caraunus displayed a side to him that was difficult to trust? Did this drive Ptolemy Caraunus into a desire to become involved in the politics of other Hellenistic kingdoms? After Seleucus was victorious over Lysimachus at the Battle of Corypodium, Seleucus would cross over the Hellespont to take his place as the new king of Macedon. But he would be stabbed to death by Ptolemy Caraunus. The death of Seleucus, who was a man in his late 70s by this time, marked the death of the last important contemporary, of Alexander the Great, and this episode on the successors of Alexander the Great finally comes to an end. Ptolemy Caraunus would take the throne of Macedon for himself, but it was a short-lived reign, with many contesting his rule that would ultimately end when Galatians from the north invaded the territory in 279 BCE, killing Ptolemy Caraunus in the process. This has been one of the longest episodes I have written and the reason is because Alexander the Great had built such a huge empire and so many people contributed to this achievement including Alexander's own somatophiliches and his military commanders. When Alexander died, all of these men were looking for their rewards and this would put them into competition with those living members of the Argiad royal family from which Alexander the Great came from. Forty years on, and his many successors were still battling as elderly men for the right to succeed Alexander the Great. The word for successors in ancient Greek is diadochi, and with the death of Seleucus, we can close out the story of the diadochi. Diodorus Siculus, the Greek historian who was alive 300 years later, tells us that when Alexander the Great was dying at Babylon, he was asked by his friends to whom he was leaving his kingdom. With his last breath, he replied, To the strongest, for I foresee that a great combat between my friends will be my funeral games. Well, I did warn you last week, I warned you it was going to be a long one, and such is the complexity of the whole situation that Alexander the Great left behind that it was such a long-winded story. But the problem is, 
I love it. I love all of that um, politics, that international politics, people changing their affiliation, changing sides, and the way it all played out. Um, I can't apologise, really, because I absolutely love it. And I found that to be probably one of the most interesting periods that I've written about in the whole of the... Uh, the whole of the volume I would suggest anyway thanks so much for sticking with it and listening to it I hope you enjoyed it I hope you enjoyed hearing about all of the different successors of Alexander the Great and um, I would like to at this time as is the usual um, format for me to thank those new members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, those people who are kind enough to make contributions towards the upkeep of the podcast. So this week we welcome JRob564, we welcome Seth Osborne, and we also um, welcome Tava Beaver. I hope I've um, pronounced your names correctly. I'm, I'm sure I probably haven't, but nonetheless. Anyway... Um, I have received messages this week, but I'm all too aware that time is against me this week, so I'm not going to read them out this week. I'm going to save them all for next week, so I'm going to try and round off this episode as quickly as possible just because of how long the story lasted this week. So um, I apologise for it overrunning if you're used to sort of cramming it into 30 minutes, but... I think the the story was so important that we had to tell the whole story. And uh, it almost warranted being cut into two episodes, didn't it? So anyway, um, I'm going to wrap up quickly this week. Next week, we're going to have a look at the Hellenistic period. We're going to have a look at the cultures of uh, what was left behind. So basically... Uh, once Alexander the Great had done all that he had done and uh, the dust settled in the aftermath, we uh, we should look at what um, what the Hellenistic period, this period after Alexander the Great's lifetime, left behind its legacy and some of the cultural advances uh, to pick up from our uh, cultural Greek episode that was a few episodes ago. I forget the number now, but nonetheless... Uh, Hellenistic culture will be the the topic for discussion next week. Anyway, have a good week, everyone. Stay safe and be good, everyone. Be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.